Thank you, Rick, worship ministry today, as well as the wonderful report from the Cuba team. God bless all of you who participated. Today comes to our exciting conclusion on our three-part series on Israel. And the reason I say it's exciting is because today's message takes us all the way to the second coming of Christ. I um, hope that you have been blessed by this. Let me tell you how you as a church have blessed me. You have blessed me by your interest in the Word of God. Uh, regardless if we agree on everything or not on this issue, there's a variety of opinions on how to parse out all of these things as there has been throughout church history. Um, your interest in the Word of God has blessed me so very much in the last few weeks and also the interaction from last Sunday night as well as emails and text messages from comments of encouragement to questions to even, Brother Matt, I don't know that you're right on this, but I appreciate you going through the topic with us. You have encouraged my pastor heart more than I can possibly express. There is nothing that excites my heart more, I think, in pastoral ministry than when the people of God get excited about the Word of God. And one of the things that I am blessed by in this topic, and not just this topic, but the Word of God, is you can dig, and you can dig, and you can dig some more, and there's still more to uncover and to be blessed by. You will never exhaust the blessing of the Word of God. So today is part number three. Part number three is how should we think about Israel, the modern state, but not just that specifically, but also what about the Israel of tomorrow? The first week we looked at the Israel of the Bible. Last week we talked about supersessionism. What is Israel today? And then now this week we're looking at the Israel of tomorrow. So I have one main question for you. Why did Paul believe that there was still a future for the Jews and Israel. Why did Paul believe there was still a future for the Jews and Israel? This question is significant because Paul has seen how their nation, their leaders have rejected Christ. He has even said they have been broken off in unbelief. But he, in Romans 11, as we are going to see today, foresaw a time, whether it's a single event or an event stretched out over years, I don't know, or generations, I don't know. He foresaw a time when Israel as a nation would return to God. I want to say one more thing on supersessionism. Supersessionism teaches the church has fully, and this is the key phrase, fully replaced Israel as God's covenant people with the covenant people of God and there is no longer any future for the people or the land apart from joining the church the key understanding is it's supersessionism believes that the church has fully and permanently replaced Israel as the people of God and there is no longer any future for the people. I do want to clarify something that I said last week because in talking with several of you this week, I realized that 
at least a couple of you misunderstood what I was getting at. I titled this message, the modern series, The Modern State of Israel, but it should not be misunderstood. I don't know that the modern state of Israel, as it exists today, is going to be a group of Jewish people that embraces Jesus in the end times. I don't know that. The reason I said last week that I believed that God had his hand in 1948 is not because a secular state was established, but rather because it began the return of Jews to the land. And it was God who scattered them in the diaspora. And my point last week was, if it was God who scattered them, who alone but could it who alone but God could regather them? That is why I see God's hand in May 1948 when the state of Israel was established. Not that the state of Israel as a secular government has some kind of special relationship with God. Or we should believe that God loves the state of Israel more than any other nation in the world. I don't think that that's true. I think God loves all the peoples of the world. And I think nations all over the world, including our own and including Israel, deal with corruption and sin and evil. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying that we as Christian people should just blindly support the modern state of Israel just because they're mentioned in the Bible. No, I believe the modern state is a reminder to us because God is sending the Jews from all over the world to Israel. And the reason I say it's God doing that, it's because it is God who scattered them. God is regathering them. And how it shakes out in the end, does the current state of Israel last? I don't know. But I do know that God has a future and a plan for the Jews in the land. And that's what I'm getting at. Today, And I want to look with you in Romans 11, verse 11 through 27 today, as Paul deals with this future of Jews, because in Paul's day, Jews by and large are not believing. The word of our Lord says this. So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall. Talking about Israel by no means rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Key statement, when they do accept the Messiah, if their rejection salvation to the world how much more in the future when they accept messiah will their acceptance bring blessing to the world verse 13 now i'm speaking to you gentiles inasmuch as i am an apostle to the gentiles remember paul's a jew i magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow jews jealous and thus save some of them for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Most commentators believe here mean the resurrection of the dead. That when Christ returns, and rather when the nation of Israel accepts Christ, that it is ultimately going to beckon the return of Christ and the resurrection. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, 
And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Paul's about to give an illustration here. He said, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, who's he talking to? Gentiles, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. That is true. You were broken off, excuse me, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue, who's the they? Israel. If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." You say, okay, Brother Matt, what in the world does all of that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's get to work. Principle number one, Paul taught that the Gentiles joined the believing Jews in the olive tree of salvation promise. Paul is trying to illustrate why Jews are not believing, why Israel as a nation has rejected Christ, and why Gentiles are. And he's addressing now because Jewish people, by and large, and the nation of Israel is in unbelief, what does that mean for them? And he illustrates this by giving us an illustration of two trees. Two trees. Paul illustrates salvation through two olive trees, the cultivated tree and the wild tree, the cultivated tree and the wild tree. I actually made this for you this week. I tried to find an illustration somewhere online that did this and explained this, but I couldn't find one, so I just had to make a few. So forgive the rudimentary nature of this diagram. Okay. Paul describes salvation here in Romans 11 as two trees. Over here, right here, this is the cultivated olive tree. 
And this is the wild olive tree. This is the cultivated olive tree, and this is the wild olive tree. The cultivated olive tree has its roots in the Abrahamic covenant. That what? That God was going to bless Abraham and make him be a blessing. But the covenant was that I would make your name great. I will give you a people and a land. And that ultimately this people will bless the world. Thank you for doing that. That's much easier. So right here, the roots of this tree is the Abrahamic covenant. So the next thing is this, is the cultivated tree represents the covenant people of God through the Abrahamic blessing. The cultivated tree represents the covenant people of God through the Abrahamic blessing. Let's go back and let's take a look at the same diagram again. So this tree right here, the cultivated olive tree, represents those who are descendants of Abraham and are members of the house of Israel. But here's what is important to note. I want you to jot this verse, couple of verses down in your margin. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul deals with this question. Are all the genetic, physical descendants of Abraham truly of the Israel of God? And Paul says in Romans 9, no. In order to be a true son of Abraham, it's not just about your bloodline. To be a son of Abraham is to have the faith of Abraham. This is why Paul talks about this thing as the Israel of God. So what's important to understand, this first cultivated tree is not the nation state of Israel. It is rather the people of God who are believing like Abraham did in God's promises. So the cultivated tree represents the covenant people of God through the Abrahamic blessing. Um, and let's go to the next one. So, next, the wild tree and the branches represent the Gentile nations. The wild tree and the branches represent the Gentile nations. So, this is the wild olive tree over here. Right here, the trunk of this tree, if you know Genesis chapter 10 and 11, there is the table of nations and the story of Babel, where by and large, Humanity rejects God's authority and they are scattered throughout the earth and they are dispersed as a judgment. And because of that, all of the nations today, in Paul's day and in our day, spring up out of the fact that God scattered people from Babel. So this wild olive tree is over here. And here are all the Gentile nations of the earth. In the Bible times, this would be Babylon, Egypt, the Hittites, the, the Ammonites, the uh, uh, Edomites, all of them. All of these people are the Gentile nations. And they are not a part of the Israel of God. Now, I want to make a distinction here, though. True or false? Were Gentiles allowed to join Israel in the Old Testament? 
Were they? Yes, they were. And in order to do so, they could come into Israel and begin worshiping the God of Israel and begin practicing the Jewish religion. Even in the Old Testament, Gentiles were allowed to be a part of this Israel of God. Here's what I want you to understand. It has never, the people of God has never been about DNA. It has never been about having Abraham as your physical descendant. The people of God, the Israel of God, is always and has always been those who, like Abraham, are believing and trusting in God's promises. So the house of Israel became the cultivated olive tree. One more question. Did all of Israel in the Old Testament were all of the Israelites, meaning all the genetic descendants of Abraham, were they all a part of this tree? No, because there's this thing called the exile. There is this thing called Baal worship. There is this thing where people who were physical descendants of Abraham were no longer a part of the Israel of God because they rejected God. So, the wild tree and its branches represent the Gentile nations. The next thing is this, is the branches grafted in are grafted in through faith. The branches grafted in are grafted in through faith. Let's go back to our diagram. We've already looked at it multiple times. Remember, to be a part of this tree, you have to believe. You have to believe. It didn't matter if you were born a Jew. You had to believe in God's promises. And God's promise was that he was sending a Messiah. Which brings us to the next thing. Is the branches grafted in are grafted in through faith. And the branches broken off are broken off through unbelief. Let's look at the diagram again. It's different now. So... What happened? Because when Jesus came, he was rejected by the Jews. By and large, he was rejected by the nation of Israel. Paul says here, we just read in Romans 11, that God took Israel, which was joined as a descendant of Abraham, because they rejected Jesus. They acted in unbelief, and have now been broken off of the Abrahamic covenant. They are now no longer joined to the Israel of God because they have rejected Jesus. These are the branches that are broken off. Now, is it true that there are some Jews that believed? Of course, because all of the apostles were Jewish. The early church was Jewish. There are still Jewish people today who believe. But by and large, the majority of Jewish people, including the nation of Israel at that day, and including our day, rejects Jesus as the Messiah. And that is what is called unbelief. And because of unbelief, they are broken off from the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Paul says something. He wants us to understand that this is a partial hardening. Why is it partial? Because it's not true of all Jews. There are some Jews who believe, but there are many 
who have been rejected and because of unbelief. Now let's go to the next one. Now, the Gentile branches grafted in should not become conceited over the Jewish branches broken off. The Gentile branches grafted in should not become conceited over Jewish branches broken off. Here's what God did according to Paul and according to Romans 11. God, because unbelieving Israel had been broken off in large number, took the Gentile nations and people of the Gentiles and grafted them into this promised tree, this Abrahamic covenant that is fulfilled by Christ, the Gentiles believing in Jesus and believing Israel, believing in Jesus, are now a part of the Israel of God. So, in this sense, even though I told you last week, I reject replacement theology or supersessionism. The reason I reject it is because it speaks of a permanent replacement and that God does not have any future plan for Israel. I don't accept that, but I do accept that the Gentiles have for now replaced Israel. I don't see how you can read Romans 11 and come to any other conclusion. Unbelieving Israel has been broken off and temporarily replaced because they rejected Christ. So if you want to call me a temporary supersessionist, that's what I think Paul was. I'm just not a full one because I believe there's still a plan for this down here. So here's what he tells the Gentiles in Romans 11. Because they were broken off and you were grafted in, don't become arrogant by looking down on those Jews that don't believe and don't for a minute become conceited because you too can act in unbelief. There is no guarantee that a Gentile people will continue to believe in Christ. We have seen nations embrace in mass the gospel and then the gospel fizzle, fizzle out over the years and nobody longer no longer believes in gentile nations it can happen in gentile nations as well here's what paul wants us to understand the reason you're included is because you believe the reason they're not included is because they don't believe but this is where it gets absolutely beautiful it's the last part let's go to the last one and that is that no matter how dead and hopeless it looks for the Jewish people to be regrafted into the tree Paul says God can graft them in again and he promises to do so culminating at the end of the age let's look at our last part of the diagram God promises that if any Jew will not stay in unbelief they can rejoin this tree if they accept Jesus as the Messiah but then he says there is coming a day when all Israel will believe all Israel referring to Jewish and Gentile family of God that one day Jesus is going to be embraced by the nation of Israel does that mean the secular nation state of today I don't know I don't know that it does I'm saying that in the nation of Israel as they group and the people of the genetic descendants of Abraham by and large according to Paul sometime I believe it starts 
probably it's a process, but it will culminate um, in the coming of Christ that the people of Israel will embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And when they do, it is going to bring several things. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I want to read to you Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if this quote's going to be on the screen, but Jonathan Edwards, American theologian and pastor of the 1700s, this is, by the way, long before the Jews had been reestablished as a people group in the Middle East. Jonathan Edwards says, nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews in the 11th chapter of Romans. Paul sees a day that's coming when Jews will believe in mass and that the nation of Israel is not going to continue in unbelief. Principle number two, let's keep going. Paul taught that Jewish hardness was partial and temporary. The reason I reject supersessionism because it says that God is done with the Jews. And that is not true. I don't see how God could possibly be done with the Jews. And we read Romans chapter 11. Because God has a future plan for the Jews. And by the way, understand, it is through Christ. God, is, God has, by the way, never saved any Jew for being Jewish. Never. Even in the Old Testament. Just by being a descendant of Abraham, you were not a member of the promised people. You had to believe in the promises. It's never been about genetics. So, Paul taught that Jewish hardness was partial and temporary. Now, let me deal with this word hardness. Hardness carries with it the idea of dullness and slowness to believe. This is a different word for hardness than is used in Romans 9, which talks of Pharaoh. Hardness means here a dullness and a slowness to believe. Let me say this, and I do not mean this as a criticism towards my Jewish friends and neighbors. They are very often the most difficult people to present the gospel to. Because there is a slowness to believe that Paul says God has allowed to be there. That doesn't make us better than them. Paul said, remember, don't you be conceited. But there is a slowness to believe. You go to Israel today, it's beautiful. I've been there. But let me tell you what Israel in mass does not do. They don't accept Jesus. They do not accept Jesus. They are still today, by and large, broken off in unbelief. And this is exactly, this is the, man, the beauty of the Bible. Paul, exactly what we see today is exactly what has been prophesied by Paul. That there would be a hardness that carries with it the idea of dullness and slowness to believe. But the hardness is not complete and it's not permanent. Jews can still believe today. They can still believe, even though many are slow to believe. They can still believe. But also, Paul makes clear, it's only for a time until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. 
And once the full number of the Gentile peoples of the world have come in, at that point, God is going to lift the hardness and by and large, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel are going to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. This is what Jonathan Edwards is saying. Nothing can be more certainly foretold than this. There's a great deal of stuff I don't understand about the end times. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, preterism, all of those things. And I have an opinion on all of that stuff. But sometimes when I read my old stuff, I wonder, what was I thinking? Listen, there's a lot I don't understand, but this one is not muddy. Paul makes it clear that before Jesus returns, Jews as a nation are going to believe. And we have yet to see that. So next, Paul believed there was coming a day when Jews as a group of people would embrace the Messiah and it would cause a chain reaction of blessing. Remember what he said? He said in verse number 12, and if their failure meant riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Also, remember what he said in verse 15, for if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And I'm going to show you what Peter said in such a few minutes. It's so exciting. The reason I get excited, man, I'm just ready to go home, y'all. I'm ready to go home. Paul believed there was coming a day when Jews as a people group would embrace the Messiah and it would cause a chain reaction of blessing. First, their, their embrace would bring salvation to their nation. That when they embraced Christ, that it would bring salvation to their nation. I don't have time to fully elaborate on this, but look in Isaiah 53. You can read the whole chapter, but Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, a famous passage which we believe points to Christ. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord laid on him the iniquity of his him uh, the iniquity of us all i want you to see in these two verses these few verses the verb tense it's all perfect tense or in english we say past tense meaning in isaiah 53 which is 400 years before jesus or more than that, actually, long before Jesus, you have Isaiah, probably more along the lines of five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus. You have him talking about Jesus, but he's talking about it in the past tense. Why is that so? Because Isaiah 53 is not just talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jews one day out there in the future are going to look back on what they missed and they're going to see Jesus and believe. This is why it's in past tense. Their embrace will bring salvation to their nation. Also, their embrace will bring salvation to all the nations in the world not yet seen. If you think Gentiles are good missionaries, Paul says the Jewish believing nation is even better than that. That 
The problem in the early church was why aren't these Jews believing? In the church of the last days, Jews will believe, and I believe it is going to bring about the greatest ingathering of souls the world has ever seen because when Israel believes in Christ and takes that message to the nations, it will be the greatest evangelistic um, display we have ever seen, according to Paul. But then also, that their embrace would bring the glorious return of Christ to Jerusalem. That when Jews believe, that ultimately, when Jews believe and embrace the Messiah, this will be the catalyst that calls the Messiah back from the heavens and down to earth. This is exactly what Paul, excuse me, Peter says in his beautiful sermon to the Jews in Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And he says, and now, brothers, talking to who? The Jews. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also your rulers, but that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Thus, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then notice what Peter says. Here's why you need to do that. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Here's what Peter is saying to the Jews. In this moment, he's saying, listen, Jesus' return is waiting on your belief because when you believe, he's coming to get you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this in his sermon on Ezekiel chapter 36 through 38. Oh, it's an extended quote, but it is so beautiful. And this is, by the way, nearly 75 years before Israel was ever regathered into the land. Oh, I wish I could preach like this. Man. Israel is now blotted out from the map of nations. Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred song is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She bringeth forth no governors among her tribes. But she is to be restored. She is to be restored as from the dead. When her own sons have given up all hope on her, then is God to appear for her. She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a body politic. The state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Israel has now become alienated from her own land. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever for her sons shall again rejoice in her and her land shall be called Beulah for a young man marrieth as a young man marrieth a virgin so shall her sons marry her I will place you in your own land is God's promise to them they shall again walk upon her mountains shall once more sit under her vines and rejoice under her fig trees and they are also to be reunited there shall not be two nor ten nor twelve but one 
one Israel, praising one God, serving one king, and that one king, the son of David, the descended Messiah. They are to have a national prosperity which shall make them famous, nay, so glorious that they shall be that Egypt, Tyre, Greece, and Rome shall forget all their glory in the greater splendor of the throne of David. The day shall yet come when all the high hills shall leap with envy because this is the hill which God has chosen when Zion's shrine shall again be visited by constant feet of the pilgrim, when her valleys shall echo with songs and her hilltops shall drip, drop with wine and oil. If there be, by the way, he was in early ministry a supersessionist and he changed his view later in life and that's where he talks about it here. If there be any be if there be meaning in words, this must be the meaning of this chapter. I wish never to have learned the art of tearing God's meaning out of his own words. If there be anything clear and plain, the literal sense and meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, must be evident that both the two and the ten tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that the king is to rule over them he saw it in the 1800s we see it today Paul saw it in the first century that one day Jesus is coming for the Jews in Jerusalem which brings me to the final thing the devil is no supersessionist please don't misunderstand what I'm saying I'm not calling a supersessionist the devil there are supersessionists in our church that love Jesus love the Jews love his church please don't misunderstand what I'm saying but if a supersessionist believes that God doesn't have a plan for Israel anymore, somebody forgot to tell the devil. Because <laughs> the devil is no supersessionist. He knows there is a future for the Jewish people, for Jerusalem, and their embrace of the Messiah brings his doom. And because of that, he has tried to stop it from the word go. First, I talked about it last week, so I won't elaborate. He cultivated Christian anti-Semitism to prevent Jewish conversion. If you want to know more about that, listen to last week. Second, he has persuaded another people. The land and the promises are theirs. There is an entire different other people that believe Abraham took the older son to that mountain and promised to Ishmael the land. There is a whole different people that occupy Zion's hill today and they believe that their God Allah gave them the land and I'm saying that he has persuaded another people that the land and the promises are theirs Ezekiel 36 1 through 2 foretold this and you son of man prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say O mountains of Israel hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God because the enemy of you is said said of you aha and the ancient heights have become our own possession. But Jesus said this was going to happen. Luke 21, 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are complete. Jesus and the word of God told us that another people in another land would call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem their home. Also, the devil, we're told in the scripture that in the end, he will gather all the nations to finally wipe Israel out. And according to the scripture, Israel will 
fall. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, that's the Jews, shall be delivered everyone whose name is found written in the book. Almost done. The last thing. I don't have time to explain Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it describes all the nations around Israel coming to crush Israel and to be done with them. And it brings me to this. When all hope is lost, he, Jesus, will come on the clouds with the host of heaven and will save his people. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 4 says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when spoil shall be taken from you that will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Saw a little bit of that lately. Half of the city shall go into exile. And by the way, I don't think that's a sign of the end. It's just a sign of a birth pain. It's going to be worse in the end. But here's what it says. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On the day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Here's what the scripture teaches. You know the first chapter of Acts. Jesus ascends into glory, Acts chapter 1, and they go looking up into the heavens, and the angels come down and say, Men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the heavens? This same Jesus that went this way is coming back the same way he left. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is coming back. He's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. It is a direct reference to Zechariah 14 and that he himself will fight and rule as king. And if you read the rest of Zechariah 14, 1 through 4, it says when he comes, all the saints of heaven come with him. Because that means when Jesus comes again to rescue his people at the end of the age, that everybody is coming with him and we will forever be with the Lord. I'm going to read you this last passage and then I'll be done. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do or who have no hope. For since that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead and Christ will die first and we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord therefore encourage one another with these words so here's my application for you you've been so patient these last few weeks and these long sermons the Bible tells us no matter how bad it looks out there, folks, Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he's bringing everybody with him. 
all of our loved ones, all of the ones that we thought were gone, and He is going to put His feet down. All wrong will be made right. All the dead will be made alive. And we will forever be with the Lord. You want to know? Amen. You know why I'm excited? Not at the terror that I see in the Middle East. I don't know how to sort all that out. It's awful. God loves Palestinians just as much as he loves Jews. But what excites me is that one day Jesus is coming to save the nation of Israel that call on his name in the end. And the very fact that there's still a nation of Israel on the world today shows me we're closer than we've ever been before. So if you don't know him today, friends, you read the last page of the book. Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. If you don't know him today, I would invite you to receive the Lord in a time when he may be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, take this minister to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.